You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host, and joining me today is my good friend, Dr. Robert A. Wild, who's a MD, a PhD, and a Master of Public Health. He's Professor of Reproductive Endocrinology, Obstetrics and Gynecology, Medicine and Family Medicine, as well as Biostatistics and Epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma. He's Chief of the Gynecology Service at the VA Medical Center in Oklahoma City. And he's an experienced clinician and investigator with a focus on primary prevention strategies for women's health, combining both OB-GYN and preventative cardiology. He's devoted more than 30 years to patient care research, higher education by teaching and mentoring to medical students, residents, masters, and PhD students, and fellow faculty. And I'm one of those who has benefited from his mentorship, and I'm really thrilled that uh, today, broadcasting from the National Lipid Association's Clinical Lipid Update in New Orleans, we were able to corral Dr. Wild, who is co-chairing the meeting. So, Bob, thank you very much for coming and doing this interview with us. Good morning, Alan. It's uh, nice to participate. So, we're going to focus today on cardiovascular disease in women during childbearing years. And this is uh, one of those topics that causes great consternation among our fellow lipid geeks. Uh, we obviously are limited in terms of what kind of medications we can give patients, and uh, we worry about that period when they're off their medications and have significant dyslipidemia. I know you often refer to pregnancy as a stress test, so tell us a little bit about why you say that and what the effects on the cardiovascular system are in pregnancy. Well, I think in a nutshell, pregnancy is diabetogenic. It's a state of insulin resistance, and with that, that means it, it stresses uh, the system for carbohydrate intolerance and possibly dyslipidemia, and we're beginning to wonder and track what that really means for lifetime diabetes risk and lipid risk, and then ultimately we're getting more and more data to the implications for long-term risk for overt diabetes and cardiovascular disease translated from, from the pregnancy state, particularly if it's a complicated one. So pregnancy itself is not a risk for diabetes unless the patient is pre-diabetic, right? Or, or what would predispose a woman to get into trouble during her pregnancy? Well, we've been able to track now the importance of pre-pregnancy metabolic state as an independent risk factor. And then we're starting to accrue data for weight gain during pregnancy in the combination of both as they may potentially have long-term implications to the offspring as well as the mother. So uh, what do you tell a woman who uh, has some components of the metabolic syndrome and they're coming to you for their first pregnancy visit? First pregnancy visit. So they're already pregnant, but they've got some components of the metabolic syndrome. Well, one of the things to stress is I think as, as a healthcare system, we've done a, not a very good job of, of proper planning for that person. So the concept of pre-pregnancy planning for all healthcare providers I think is a very important issue to emphasize. Too often we see patients early in pregnancy when it's even more challenging when we could have made a difference before pregnancy. So let me just hit that point first. Issues of early pregnancy are challenging. Mother's excited, mother's interested. We try to follow guidelines for important diabetes screening and issues of um, routine screening for lipid disorders are not well worked out and probably not routinely cost-effective as, as far as we can tell. On the other hand, if somebody has risk factors prior to pregnancy, 
metabolic syndrome, diabetes, issues in family history that are important, all that put together, I think all of us would step out of those guidelines and screen much more intensely in the early components of pregnancy than, than not, uh, independent of, of quality guidelines related to it. Why do I say that? Well, we're learning lots of information about how prevalent dyslipidemia really is in pregnancy, part and parcel from the epidemic of obesity, part and parcel for uh, our awareness to address it. And so uh, we tend to step out of the box and screen even more than the average guidelines. Well, as someone who's not dealing with dyslipidemia and pregnancy, the, the golden rule used to be among lipidologists, don't, don't even draw a lipid during pregnancy because it'll drive you crazy. It'll drive you crazy. So tell me a little well, bit about... Well, there's some important points to remember about how that works. Okay, so complications of pregnancy actually track with triglycerides, not cholesterol levels. So when there's hypertriglyceridemia in pregnancy, the thing to think about is how is that related to an obstetrical complication? turns out that high triglycerides can be related to the effect of insulin resistance, which is associated with problems of preeclampsia, pregnancy-induced hypertension, and um, obstetrical accidents. So we, we got to figure that it's a signal and work in conjunction with your obstetrician to help them understand what the goals really are and, and how to be alert to her management. Now, it's an issue of magnitude. What if you get your triglycerides back and they're enormous? And now you're dealing with a hypertriglyceridemic state. And your largest concern there, uh, above and beyond the association with complications of pregnancy, is you want to avoid pancreatitis. And it's challenging. If you have a person who's diabetic and out of control, you have a person with a genetic disorder with hypertriglyceridemia, and the triglycerides are, are, are really high, our general set point is, is we'd love to have triglycerides always under 400 to avoid problems and complications, which, which can be a very lethal condition of pancreatitis in pregnancy. And, and the way we deal with that is depends on where they are, depends on what trimester of pregnancy and how far they're out of whack. It's important to alert our audience that um, some of the dis disorders can present for the first time to you in early pregnancy, and you need to be aware of all the signs and symptoms of hypertriglyceridemia, eruptive xanthomas. You need to look in the retina for lipemic retinalis and be alert to those issues in pregnancy just like you would in a non-pregnant state. So if the patient is diabetic, obviously diabetic control is first line of treatment. Uh, if the triglycerides are severe enough or a person's sick enough, Often they have to be hospitalized, and if, if high glucose is part of the component, then insulin drip is used to keep them under control. If it is not, there's really no reason to do that. And so D5 half normal saline is usually used, or total parental nutrition in order to get them over that challenging time when they're hospitalized for those real severe things that are, that are life-threatening. Then it's a transition over to what do you do as an outpatient? which is just as much of a challenge. And I think it's very useful for our, our audience to remember that the, the birth defect risk seems to be uh, less in the last 
part of pregnancy than it is the first part of pregnancy. So what has been evolved commonly is the use of gemfibrocil in the last trimester of pregnancy, particularly when we transition to an outpatient setting. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to tell us first uh, a little bit about what the normal lipids are in pregnancy so we don't get nervous. If someone draws a lipid level first, second, or third trimester, what should we expect? Actually, it turns out that the data to look at what's normal is challenging because not many people have truly studied really normal people before they're pregnant and then tracked them through pregnancy. But it has been done. And the information really shows that there's a, a steady increase in both parameters, but then the numbers to remember is they don't usually go above 325, 330 for either triglycerides or, or cholesterol. So those are pretty well good benchmarks for understanding what the normal changes really are in pregnancy and benchmarks for us to, to think is in our decision-making as clinicians to control some of these disorders. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and with me is Dr. Robert Wild. We're discussing how to manage cardiovascular disease as well as dyslipidemia in women during childbearing age. We talked a little bit about what the normal levels are, and you alluded a little bit to the options when a woman is uh, admitted with pregnancy and uh, with severe hypertriglyceridemia. And the implication was hyperglycemia, you put them on insulin, which will bring their triglycerides down a lot of times, right, especially mm -hmm. if you use long-acting. Um, you mentioned gemfibrozil. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason why gemfibrozil is an outpatient? And again, I think you said wait till the third trimester when there's less likelihood of a a problem, but... Uh, well, well, the thing to, to remember is that the phenomenon of insulin resistance <laughs> in the stress test gets increasingly worse. What happens is the first part, the first two-thirds of pregnancy, the, the mother's uh, putting on fat stores, enhancing more energy, and the insulin resistance state goes ahead and continues, and teleologically thinking the whole concept is, is the mother's trying to preserve the best nutrition for the child so that amino acids are channeled the right way and direction. So, so remember that, that, that later on in pregnancy is where some of these things are going to continue to precipitate. And, and that you can't maintain them always. Uh, the best way to do it is with a team. Uh, you're a champion of team medicine. This is a perfectly good example. Here's a really good opportunity to work with your obstetrician or your maternal fetal specialist and many of them may not be aware of the lipid management. So what you need to do is work as a team. Don't forget these people may have additional obstetrical risk factors that have to be managed and concerns. Premature delivery, um, if they're diabetic, they're at risk for infections, uh, larger babies, more obstetrical complications. So all these things are done and should be ideally done in conjunction with an obstetrician gynecologist. You may be the person, though, to be the consultant or try to help them with the lipid component. And it's very useful to know that many of these patients have mixed disorders, mixed problems. They may have hypertension, they may have dyslipidemia, they may have diabetes, and you're called in in order to, to manage this particular part. So part so of a team is essential, and as you know, multifactorial diseases require multifactorial risk reduction. Well, I'm fascinated by this, Bob, because I'm learning from you, as always. So I, I, I guess I, I would like to hear you tell, help our fellow lipidologists and also give a little insight to those people who are not in lipid management who, are, who make up our audience. Now, when do you decide that the numbers are such that you need to add gemfibrozil? 
And why gemfibrazole over fish oil or uh, phenofibrate? Well, honestly, I, what we routinely use is, is uh, high-grade fish oil. And, and the fact is we don't have any quality data either way. And, and honestly, I think it's more empiric than anything because we've learned in the last trimester it's been used pretty routinely and widely without major problems. And understanding its metabolism, how it works, gets into some of that. Our mainstay, though, is off-label, uh, non-FDA-approved um, high-grade fish oil uh, in the early parts of pregnancy in order to try to keep those tri triglycerides down to 400 to prevent the problem to begin with. And there it doesn't seem to be too significant a risk of uh, bleeding complications, etc. It appears to be, as in the non-pregnant state, a, a bit more of a theoretical concern than a real practical one. On the other hand, obstetricians are always worried about bleeding. Every doctor is worried about a pregnant woman bleeding. So you need to alert your obstetrician gynecologist if you're working with them what's going on and what that's about. And they're used to dealing with aspirin or other medications that may affect complications of pregnancy that could be associated with problems of bleeding. So at what cut point would you say it's time to add a fibrate and uh, why gemfibrazole as opposed to phenofibrate, for example? We don't have any good comparison one way or another, and I think it's more because we feel comfortable with the risk issue, and I don't think we have trials either way. Uh, if you look at the data, it... it <laughs> Ann Goldberg wrote a really nice article on the JCNM, and she reviewed what are really case series. Nobody has a really quality study to tell you that, I mean, niacin's been used, uh, phenofibrates have been used, gemfibrosil is pretty widely used, phenofibrate in the early parts of pregnancy because we tend to think its risk profile is better, but do we have really quality information above case series? The answer is no. In fact, some people use uh, apheresis, some people uh, use gene therapy, uh, some people use uh, monochain triglycerides. Uh, the important thing is you work with a really quality nutritionist if you're in that risk situation, and people with total parental nutrition ability uh, are your friends. So I'm trying to get you to tell me what triglyceride level would tip you over from using omega-3s to using a fibrate. I, it's is, there, is there some magical number that you use? No, if it's really over 1,000, you're on fish oil. Is that something that would make you think? You mean if, if you can't control it with fish oil? Right, alone? right. I mean, what are, what would lead, obviously fish oil would be your optimal choice. And then what would lead you to feel I've, I've got to add a fibrate? Non-responding. If I start seeing that there's, I can't get her anywhere close to 400, then I'm going to have to add more. Okay, very, very interesting. And then what kind of dietary things are safe to do? Obviously, when people come in, admitted with severe hypertriglyceridemia. Mm -hmm. We put them on a fat fast immediately and the numbers come down. Is that yeah, safe to even, do in a pregnant woman? We think so, as far as we know. I mean, you know, nature's really pretty good about dealing with all those elements. Remember, it all funnels uh, in a remarkable way to, to really provide quality nutrition to the child. And what happens is we can overload that system above and beyond the homeostatic boundaries that are already there. So. Uh, what we've done is be very severe with fat restriction, down to 15%. Uh, many case reports are right, really down to 20%. But we've been even more rigid than that.
you. Thank you very much, Bob. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and you've been listening to Lip Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association at ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash lipids, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you very much for listening.